So I was listening to All Songs Considered on NPR the other day, and they floated a concept that I think you will appreciate. They floated the concept that the album, the record album, is the new movie. It could work. It's... I tend, I kind of feel like I consume them like that nowadays. Well, exactly. The idea being that where most people who are not you and I, or or many people listening to this show, consume a movie one time and are done with it and maybe come back to it once or twice in their lifetime, that is what the album has turned into. Nobody listens to a record end-to-end anymore except that one time. No, that's not true. You don't believe that? But then again, I have always known that I'm just broken and weird. <laughs> um, but then again, the, I, I tell you this story since you're bringing up music and albums and people today, how they listen to stuff. I was at work, my last job, which I, I just left, um, and a young lady came to my desk and I do what I always do whenever people come to my desk and try to talk to me. I slap my headphones on them and distract them for a few minutes so I can get something done. Um, I was listening to, I can't remember what album it was, and she was like, I think it was the Lana, the Lana De Havas album. Okay. Um, and she, like, heard a song, and she was like, oh, that's nice, who's this? And I showed her my phone, and she saw the album photo up, and she's like, did you buy this? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, but you can just listen to the song on YouTube. Oh, I know. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but what if you want nine more songs from her? But you have that one song from YouTube. And then I just kept quiet yeah it's like we have nothing in common we're done here (laughs) welcome to wherever you are my name is ryan mcneil toronto canada you are listening to episode 148 of the matinee cast it's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website matinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective folks it's getting towards the end of the year uh the movies are getting varied and um so too are the guests we've uh, you know we've been home for a while we went uh, we went to chicago last episode we went to australia not long ago and today we're uh, we're going across a wire again and we're going across a wire to uh, a, a dear dear friend of the site uh somebody who I gotta be honest, keeps the damn site running. I cannot tell you the amount of times I have just broken the holy hell out of it. Uh, and uh, and miraculously, this person looks at it, hits a couple keystrokes off in his magical Caribbean kingdom, and all is well. And I swear to God, it is Greek to me. He might as well be speaking in Sanskrit when he says, oh, just do this and this and this. And I'm not even that dumb when it comes to this stuff. I'm kind of dumb, but not that dumb. And he, he does it all just for thanks and the love of the game so i i owe him immensely and on top of that i haven't had him on the show in far 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 too long so it is in uh, the holiday spirit and the end of the year uh spirit that we uh, we bring family back home and we go across the wire to jamaica in the caribbean tonight and we welcome the host proprietor owner and uh you know tech support extraordinaire i'm sure of gmanreviews.com i'm not that good <laughs> you know you, you are that good. Uh, Andrew Robinson is the voice you just heard. How are you, buddy? I'm I'm all right. And dude, you need to keep backing up your website. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Tonight on episode 148, we are going to review Beasts of No Nation. We're going to flip the record over to play the other side. But before any of that, of course, we need to learn more about Andrew. This is Know Your Enemy.
Andrew first appeared on episode 18, a long-since-archived episode where we talked about Salt. There, we learned that the first movie he saw was The Nightmare Before Christmas. The last movie he'd seen at the time was The Long Goodbye. The worst film he'd ever seen was The Man Who Fell to Earth, and I dare say I'd challenge that now, because it's been a while and I'm sure you've seen some crap. You, you have seen some things, haven't you? I've seen lots of things. Yeah. The unseen classic or essential was Schindler's List, which he has since seen. And the films, plural, he wished he had made uh, were twofold. Reservoir Dogs in the standard, that was awesome, I wish I had done that, respect. And Predators in the, that was terrible, I think I can fix it, respect. Next time he appeared on episode 67, where we talked about Premium Rush, he said the film that everybody else does not like that he does is Speed Racer. And I concur. I, I quite like that film. The film that everybody else digs that he does not is Rear Window because he's crazy. The film that made him cry was The Fountain. The In the movie of his life, he would be played by Jason Siegel. And the film he was watching next is The Seventh Seal, which is my final blind spot for the year, by the way. Finally, that, that's a great movie. I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I think it's a good one to uh, to end the year on and, and, and write about in December. Finally, on episode 79, where we, um, well, we talked about the FP. The film, <laughs> <laughs> the film that made his love of film turn a corner was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. His first dates movie, plural, because he's a player were Ray and the Heartbreak Kid. His sick day movie is The Blues Brothers. The film that left him speechless is Schindler's List, and his epitaph would be, let's go someplace like Bolivia. All right, you are... Has I, anyone bettered that question yet? Uh, there's been some good ones. There's been, uh, you know, there, there's been Don't Everybody Thank Me at Once. There's been If I forget to tell you i had a really good time tonight there's been there i gotta be honest like that might be my favorite question to ask people of all the ones i do ask people that that might be my favorite one to ask and the one where i do get some of the best answers um so i don't know if anybody's bettered it but i i I almost always get a great answer to that question uh so now i'm actually gonna look up the uh the questions for round four because i am not nearly as familiar with them here we go (laughs) got it uh, okay, so what is the movie you really dig but you never want to watch again? I've been thinking about this since he sent the email and he finally figured out exactly the movie that fits this question best. If, and if, that you, is... wait, wait, if you answer Schindler's List again, I'm calling veto. <laughs> no, um, it's Todd Solondz's Happiness. If you've ever seen that, yes. that wonderful film, that movie is so good. It is, it is masterful. And the main reason it does it is that no matter how horrible everything, every character in that movie does, you feel for every one of them. And I never want to feel that again for those people. <laughs> it's, um, it's a strange thing when a movie makes you sympathize with terrible people, isn't it? It's, it's messed up. I think we should, I think we should dock points from that director for a while. We should... Well, you should just be like, yeah, you, you've had your run. You're you're in the corner for the next five years. You're not allowed. Yeah, I think he needs to make the next Smurfs movie. Mm, that'd be fun. Uh, you know what? I would actually pay handsomely to see a Todd Solondz Smurfs movie. Film Twitter is a fun place. 
They say <laughs> lots of dumb things. Yes. Um, one thing that I kind of caught on to and have been thinking of fun jokes as to who I would play this on. Um, you know about the Dogma 95 stuff where they're putting restrictions on all these directors? Yes. And someone brought up, I think it might have been Labuzo, um, brought up this concept of what you thought what you thought would be great rules for directors. And he picked Wes Anderson and said a great rule he would he would force on Wes Anderson is that when he finds a location that he wants to film in, he's not allowed to change anything about the location. Okay. Right? So it has to be natural locations. Um, he's not allowed to have like a made-up set. He just finds a house and goes, that's my house and okay. can't mess with it. Um, so how does and, that apply to Solons? Now, Solons, how I would play with Solons is he's not allowed to actually tell the actors what to do. He's only allowed to talk to the set crew. <laughs> okay. He gives them a script and that's and it. That's it. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm in favor of this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, do, I don't think I ever need to go back to happiness. Um, although it's been a while, so I might actually just go back to it to watch it with adult eyes because I think the first time I saw it, I was far too young. Um, moving on, what is the film that genuinely freaked you out? Oh man, uh, this is kind of weird because I, I generally am not scared by movies. I mean, I told the story repeatedly, repeatedly about um, myself and Death Proof, where <laughs> where that movie freaked me out not for the reason that the movie was scary or anything like that, but it was one of those moments where I actually kind of bought into movies because the thing about it is that. I've explained this to you, whether it's through writing or our conversations at some point, that I'm a technical person. Yeah. And there's so much of movies that are technical. And I've gotten to the point where I break down movies in my head. Like, I was watching a short film a little bit earlier ago, and I was going like, that's a cut, that's a cut, that's a... Even though I've never actually made a movie, I'm like, this is how it would probably be done, right? Um, And so much of it is cloaked by the part of my brain which understands that movies aren't real and there's a safe way they did this right um so i'm not that guy who watches a horror movie and sees 20 people be murdered and be like damn it people could be murdered right um but with death proof the last half an hour when they're dealing with the cars the crazy car sequence when they're having their car fight and she's on the hood of the car yes and they're coming for something about the way that was put together. It just seemed real to me. It seemed like she was on the hood of that car and they were going 80 miles an hour. And well, well she was I on the hood of that car. Like that, I think that, that was fueled by the fact that you knew you were watching a stunt woman, right? Yeah, but I didn't quite have all that information at once. And more importantly, as I saw every shot and every, every hit and every movement by, by the actress, Every time I saw it, I'm like, she doesn't look like she's safe right now. No. No, no. <laughs> and I don't mean, like, the character doesn't seem safe. I don't think that stunt woman is safe. No. And not even, like, by any normal mean normal level of stunt person yeah. safe. Yeah. <laughs> th- th- this is a stunt person, not an actor. And she is giving me some genuine fear right now. I don't think, I, you know, I, I think that's a little more method. Yeah, that's, uh, and, and because, of course, that's that's tangible, right? Like, that's, like, we know what a car can do when it gets up that fast. And certainly cars that are... And the car looked like it was hitting that speed. It didn't look like it was 
they were going 30 and some visual trick made it no, look no, like no no they looked like they were going pretty darn quick yeah okay that's yeah that, that's that's a good answer to that one i can it feels very very visceral it feels very real yeah okay no that's, that's the movies good. aren't supposed to do that to no me. i'm no, supposed no. to be easy to to go that's okay yeah that that dog is fine no <laughs> yes now conversely this this may be an easy mark for you but i but I'm, I'm very curious what is a film that always makes you laugh blazing saddles <laughs> Quick, the quickest pick in my world. <laughs> Mel Brooks is the king. And when you bring racism, <laughs> slapstick comedy, and, and, and westerns together, what more can you ask for? <laughs> I, you know, in my head right now, I'm just hearing, hey, where are the white women at? <laughs> that is one of my favorite gags out of that movie. Um, <laughs> but... On a, on a weirder note, do you know that that movie was the first time I ever heard the song I Get No Kick From Champagne? Really? I never heard that song before I saw that movie. Okay. Well, it, it's it's crazy sometimes of where we come across these things. Uh, like where, where we come across these like pieces of pop culture. You know, uh, it, where I, I remember there was a comedian years ago who in his act, he started playing Heard It Through the Grapevine and he goes – I'm going to do uh, an audience test here and see the age of the group uh, gathered before me. Who amongst you here, when I play this song, are imagining a bunch of tiny raisins walking across the stage? And a, a few people clap. <laughs> and he goes, while the rest of us know that you are far too silly to understand that and know that this is the song from The Big Chill. <laughs> it's it's that kind of... It's that I'm, kind going of to, I'm going to guess that that comedian was either one of two people... Zach Galifianakis or Paul F. Tompkins? Might have been Paul F. Tompkins. It definitely was not Zach Galifianakis. It is a very okay. old routine. Like I, yeah, I, I didn't really completely get it at the time because I hadn't seen the Big Chill, um, Blazing Saddle. Like it's, but you know what? It's actually been far too long since I've seen Blazing Saddle. So a lot of the jokes might land as new. Um, so I think I'm due for a rewatch. Well, uh, speaking of music, here we go. What is your favorite movie soundtrack? This one is actually tough because I'm trying to think of a movie where it would makes sense because I've, I've listened to lots of soundtracks and one of the things that I loved about movie soundtracks wasn't necessarily someone made a great mix of songs that I listened to over and over, but it was, Oh, that's how I found out about that artist mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that I know listened to all the while. Um, but as I was kind of skimming through my, my music library on my computer, trying to, before this podcast, what came up, but the album Quadrophenia from the who, and I'm like, that definitely does it. This yeah. is an album which I, let's say, discovered in a very Christopher Columbus manner. Um, it, around three years ago, I think it was an, uh, they played a song on an episode of All Songs Considered, which is how I found it. Um, and I just had it on my phone listening on repeat for like a whole year. This year, I finally saw the movie. Um didn't like the movie that much, but I love the music. And this movie, this this album is just kind of fantastic. And I, I don't think I've actually listened to another album from The Who. I should probably do that. You you probably should. I'd, I'd probably say start with Tommy next. Um, <laughs> I, I miss I miss that, you know? Like, along with the fact that I miss good soundtracks, uh, you know, like it's, it's crazy. Because as much as I like to make fun of the movie, um, the soundtrack for something like Footloose is incredible. Because side one of that record has like four number one hits on it in a row, and, which you you 
you're hard pressed to get that on any soundtrack now, like that many number one hits on it. Um, or something, of course, like Purple Rain, where, you know, he wrote a whole music, whole album's worth of music and then built it out into a movie. I miss that so much. I feel like that's not nearly done as much these days where one band or one artist builds a, a, a movie from the album out. Eh. <laughs> no? Or there, you don't there, miss it? Um, You see, it's because I've had a lot of those movies where I actually enjoy listen to it, listening, listening to the movie almost like it is its own soundtrack. So a lot of Wes Anderson movies, a lot of... No, no, um, no, 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 no. That, that, no, no, no. That, that is, I call shenanigans. That is totally not what I'm talking about and you know I know, that. I know. I know it's not what you're talking about, but... And, and if, I appreciate ta- those too. <laughs> if you're getting to the point where you're discussing enjoying the the art of music in movies, then there are other ways to get to it. Well, it doesn't have to are. be it, it doesn't have to be this concept of someone taking an album and making a movie because they did it in nineteen seventies with Alice's restaurant and screw that movie. <laughs> I, I heard that episode. I, I, I kind of I kinda of wanna put that record on while we play. Um, but <laughs> I don't you, want to hear any of those songs. Oh it's so good. Uh, but no, Quadrophenia. Uh, that, that that is you know, I can't argue with that at all. That's that's definitely one of the best soundtracks ever. Uh full stop. But uh, last but not least, what is a movie you dig that nobody else or few other people have heard of? This feels like a cheap question because I've gone down the rap like you and we've gone down the rabbit hole of movie cinephilia, movie snobbery, as my co-host likes to call it. Um, to the point at which the concept of us seeing movies that no one's heard of is kind of like all the movies we love. No, Most I don't. I don't believe that. <laughs> um, hey, come, walk outside of your film festival crew and see how many. And throw out your top ten and see if eight of them hit, right? Fair enough. Um, <laughs> the, the movie I'd like to go with for this, though, is what I'd like to consider is a movie that I feel, if you didn't see it at a film festival, you probably have never seen it or heard of this movie. Um, and it's, it is Closed Curtain by, by Jafar Panahi. Heard of it. <laughs> so, so, so I have to pick another one. But okay, but but I, I, I imagine a lot of people will not have heard of it, um, and, and right. may, maybe even people listening but, to this show. Tell people. Put it what... this way: I actually looked up around a few months ago when I remembered this movie, thinking I want to watch that again. It isn't out on Blu-ray. The only way you can watch this movie is if you buy it digitally. I was which... going to say, do you have to like get the cake that made its way out of Iran? Um, tell people what it's about. Um, this is about. Uh, a man who is trapped in a house as there is a war outside of some sort and he a dog has traversed into his home and he's trying to keep the dog safe and there are some other characters who appear and it kind of breaks the mold into a into breaking the fourth wall and panahi shows up and it you kind of feel this sense of panahi talking about his own restrictions in life and filmmaking after his current ban of not being able to make movies and under house arrest in Iran. Um, and what, and what it, is it about this movie that you especially dig? It was, first of all, it was the, the generic film festival story, which is, I didn't know much and I found out so much afterwards. Oh, that, that's um, I, def, 
I definitely knew about Panahi and I knew about his situation, but I didn't know about the twists and turns that this movie was going to make, especially that moment where it breaks the, the wall and the mo- you actually start to see behind the camera a lot. And it, it became this experience of actually feeling like a movie is more is more personal than you generally feel a lot of the time. So many times with movies, and I guess this could just be a numbers game when you're watching a movie, you can feel that moment where someone said, that will be fun because it'll be entertaining and that's a fun joke, so let's add that into the movie. Hmm. That action scene will be an entertaining action scene, so let's put that in the movie. And it becomes under the title of entertainment because as a, as a medium, as, as an industry, movie is an entertainment product. Yeah. Right. So why not make everything as entertaining as possible? But in every other art form, there is a point where you, even if it's on one project or or many projects, you start to actually feel a uh, an an idea for what this person making this piece of art actually feels towards a thing, whether it be their situation, whether it be a thing happening out in the world, or anything else. There there are movies that people like to use the term are ham-fisted about it sure um this movie might be a little bit that but i didn't feel like it went too far with it and it just kind of struck that right chord okay close curtain by jafar panahi now we're not going to go down this rabbit hole because we could be here for a while but i will link in the show notes um another friend of the show amir sultani wrote a really good piece uh about a month or two ago uh, at Movie Mezzanine, I believe. Um, I could be wrong yep. about that, but he wrote it um, where he wonders how Panahi's work uh, fares in light of his whole mystique. Is is Panahi's work fueled by this situation he's in, which is that he's basically a, a political prisoner right now within his own country and under house arrest. But if that is the case there's a little bit that needs to be understood about that because it seems like it's a, it's somewhat horseshit. So I'm going to, I'm going to, he can explain it much better than I can um, about the relationship between the artist's work and the artist's situation. But uh, I'd say definitely give that a read. And Andrew, you and I are going to have to talk about that off air because that's, that's a bit of a long conversation, but there we go. Um, that's a lot of great answers from Andrew and uh, some things I knew, some things I did not know. Um, but we are going to go on to the new slang for this episode. We are going to talk about a film, which um, it's the first film that we've talked about on this show. That's uh, on demand right now. As we speak, if you uh, want to pause this and haven't, seen the movie you can go right to it um we're going to talk about a netflix film called beasts of no nation right after this Beasts of No Nation, which you can now stream on Netflix. It is a Netflix-produced film. was directed by Kerry Fukunaga. It stars Idris Elba, Abraham Attah, and Kurt Egeowan. I feel like actually Egeowan was in something else, because now that I say his name properly, I feel like I've said it before. Uh, or maybe I'm just thinking back to take one of this section. Uh, 
It was written by Fukunaga. It's based on the book by Uzo Dinma Iwala. And it is about an unnamed West African country where a family is splintered apart as they try to flee from as refugees from incoming civil war. As the men in the family are executed, one boy remains who was not harmed by the army. His name is Agu. Um, he flees into the forest and he is there soon found by a battalion of rebel native defense force soldiers, many of them young boys which at first threatened to kill him, but soon coerced him into joining them as a soldier under the command of a character known as the Commandant. That is Idris Elba. To introduce this film, I reach to the Gospel according to Robinson, where it is written, There are very strong moments in this movie, and some of them aren't as impactful, but play off more trite in the trend of African war scenarios being trivialized and regurgitated in films that don't always make it feel as if their lives matter as much as we know they should. So, pop quiz hotshot. What does a war film have to do to make life seem as though it matters? And how did Beasts miss the mark for you? So, I don't don't know if you know this, Brian. Um, I'm not American or Canadian or European. No! I am... No! (laughs) I am... This weird thing called Jamaican, right? Not many people are this thing, but I am. Um, I just spent the last month and a half going to the theater and seeing an ad for a, a local film, which you would have never heard of, which I can only describe title-wise as the Jamaica Mafia Family. That sounds fantastic. Right? I want to see that. It, no, you don't. Oh. Uh, if I if, if I can find a YouTube link, I'll, I'll link you the trailer later, and you can have a nice laugh. Cool. Um, so the thing about it is that there are so many movies that I watch where it becomes painfully obvious to me the international view of these movies, that being they're not mine, right? So when I see... Um, it, Let's take, for example, the ridiculous version of this this of this story. Well, not Beasts of No Nation, but I'm talking about the international viewpoint. Um, just now, people are getting into a wonderful repeat kerfuffle over the fact that um, American studios are making another Egyptian-based movie. Um, not Egyptian, sorry. Um, Greek-based movie. Some God, War of Gods movie or something. I don't know the actual title. Starring a bunch um, of white people. Starring a bunch of white people. Um, and it becomes really obvious to you that if you watch that movie, it is no different from watching any generic action movie. They're just setting it in Greek mythology. And you can be, you can decide to not be offended by it or be offended by the fact that, oh, they decided not to represent that culture correctly. Um, but regardless of how, whether you're offended or not by the movie, it's very easy to understand that nothing about that movie matters. It never holds the weight of any actual history that might be behind it. Um, I've seen a lot of movies portray Jamaicans or people of other cultures where they are handed off as people that don't matter. And while this movie tries a lot to play a lot of things to make you feel for these characters, to make you feel for the the war-torn country in Africa, which there have been many movies about war-torn African nations. There's sure. been Lord of War, where they're actually making fun of the fact that it's war-torn. Yeah. Um, 
right? This movie, it it definitely tries to get you to feel for Agu, the the main the main young warrior who is drawn into this war. Um, but at the same time, it kind of makes you kind of be like, yeah, Idris Elba is badass, isn't he? He has that gun. He says those great speeches. It's kind of cool. You see Stryker there, and you're like, oh, Stryker, he's he's kind of normalized into this world, and maybe he's kind of a little messed up, but we kind of like him. He's, he's fun. And due to that kind of approach to this story, it feels so much like a movie which wants to be two things. It wants to be that epic war movie where you're happy that bombs are falling because you're like, ooh, explosions on the screen. And at the same time, it wants to feel like a movie that that wants to make you feel for Africa, but you know that no one doing this movie really cares. Or you get that sense that no one really cares. They're just making a movie. Well, you know you know what I, I'm thinking when I think back on this movie and, and think back on the way it treats the situation and treats the lives and treats the, the characters and the way they're presented is it really seems like it wants to be mystical and for lack of a better word very very tribal and i i say that because there's a lot of shots where things happen in silhouette through smoke from a distance you know while very very trippy music happens on the soundtrack or very very lush colors appear uh to to illustrate it all and it it feels as though it does not want to be grounded in any kind of reality that we know and not in a good way like it's it's not like it wants to completely fictionalize it it wants to be of this world but at the same time not of this world and i think because of that a lot of the characters get lost in the shuffle and just become you know characters like they they don't become characters they just become ciphers for whatever the director wants it to, to tell it's it's just a messy movie is all it really is, right? And if you want to watch a movie about an African war where you're seeing Idris Elba make great speeches and you're seeing children being abused and the movie kind of being like, we're not really going to talk about it. Um, or you get to see children being forced to take some form of drugs um, and hallucinate and think that they're going to be invisible. Invincible, sorry, not invisible. Invincible. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> a very different movie, man. It's a very different movie, which involves four, three other characters and people questioning the box office numbers of it. This movie kind of just feels like a boring version of better movies that have done it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Like it, it, I, th- I think it's kind of crazy because as I watched this movie, I could see, I could certainly see what it wanted to be, and I could see brushstrokes of other movies. And I mean, like even I think about a Canadian movie from a few years ago that was nominated for best foreign film named Rebel. Thinking about the movie, I was trying to think of the name of that flipping movie. I didn't like that one either. Oh, well, that's <laughs> that's because you're crazy. Um, or or it's it's something known as Rebel or War Witch, and it's a better executed movie of very much the same themes than than this movie is because like I you know it, it's a crazy thing. Like on the one hand, I'm glad this movie exists because I think that there's a lot of good things about it. But on the other hand, I feel like it could have been so much better. And if nothing else, the movie just feels really, really surface to me. Like it doesn't really feel like it gets into the real 
heart of any of the characters. Like, the... The thing that came to mind watching this movie again, because I saw this movie a while back um, when it first hit Netflix. I'm like, I watched this movie. Idris Elba is in it. Yeah. I like Idris Elba. Um, the, the thing that came to mind watching this movie again is when I started to view... When I started to view Agu not as a not as a, a child who's having these horrible things happen to him, but I started to think about how how characters like him have to have to deal with day to day war scenarios, which are still raging on in that part of the world, where we have these things happening to them and they don't know where to go. And when we turn this into guerrilla jungle warfare that feels like feels like the stories that I heard as a child in prep school about Nanny of the Maroons here in Jamaica, about a lady who's, who's literally, if you don't know this, Ryan, this is a great piece of fiction for you. The stories they tell of this woman is that she could catch bullets with her ass. <laughs> right? Wow. And okay. that is what we tell children here. Awesome. Right? <laughs> um, it feels no different than hearing that story it, when I was young. And I'm... I don't know. It just felt wrong. And what I was interested to ask you about is the the concept of a war movie. Yep. Right? You, you, I've heard you talk nonstop about Spielberg war movies because he's done a few. Yeah. Um, he even did a series, a produce, helped produce a series. Oh, are, um, are we going to talk about War Horse on this episode? Because I like doing that. <laughs> we could talk about War Horse because that takes us to the more the more um, that, Hollywoodized art. I think that that's right? you know that's an installation unto itself. Um, when you're talking about a war, which is in itself an an act that kind of doesn't care about life in itself, because it's men fighting men and us saying whoever has the last. Whoever's the last one standing wins. Yes. All right. Um, lots of bodies will hit the ground, and that's just the reality of war. Um, are war movies allowed to be careless with life? In general, or well, they 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 are. They do. I think they they perpetrate the myth. They're what keeps war happening, along with a lot of other things. But I, I feel like it can be done in a way that is honorable uh, for as much as a war film can be honorable. And I feel like that there's a whole other subgroup to it where it just serves as propaganda. Like, you know, we, we came away from uh, an entire hunger games franchise where half of one story and basically an entire film was dedicated to the selling of a war. And I'm thinking to myself, this is actually really, really on point in terms of getting a group behind and this is kind of this this is kind of what we do get a little bit of in beasts of no nation in terms of selling the conflict either selling it to the people who you're rolling through their town selling it to the people who can't think for themselves or in the case of the commandant selling it to the boys that you're trying to recruit and trying to make them seem like they're doing something virtuous um so it it can be done i don't think it often is done i don't 
think that Beasts of No Nation is uh, a, a virtuous war movie. I think it wants to be. Like, I, I really see... I, I see the DNA of this movie. I see exactly what it's going for and what it gets close to being in a lot of cases. Um, but I, I feel like in a lot of instances, it really misses the mark. It's just boring. Let's be well, no, real. But no, it's not. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, I don't get me wrong. I was by the time this movie was over. I didn't care as much as I should have, especially in that last act. Like there, there's there's a moment late in in the very late going that we learn just how little clout the commandant has, and we'll get to that in a minute. But from that moment forward, when we learn just you know kind of like his role in this revolution, it it feels like the air just gets sucked out of this movie. When really and truly, that should be where it turns a corner and just takes over. So it's it's not that it's bad. It's just it's it's a little bit lifeless. Now I will admit, and I got a question for you. Part of me wonders if that has something to do with watching it at home. This is a film that it played a few festivals, TIFF being one of them, and had a very, very, very small theatrical run. I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny theatrical run. You mean Oscar theatrical run? Yes, it, it like, like <laughs> qual, yeah, qualifying for awards, theatrical run. But by and large, the, because it was a Netflix production, this was meant to be consumed either at home in front of your television or laptop or, you know, m- more, more mind-blowingly on your device on the go and i like that's my that's my next question to you is war films to me have always seemed larger than life no matter whether i've liked them or whether i haven't liked them they have always seemed to be so much more encompassing than than my television will will handle do you think that's one of the deterrents about this movie do you think this movie might have worked better with a little bit more scope to it um, if you're talking about the size of your screen, then absolutely not. And that might just be my personal experience because, I mean, we have this constant bickering between us through every time we talk where I get to be jealous of you that you get to see all these things in a screening where... Because the thing is, I love going to the movies. And while I've made this talk many times on my podcast about hating going to my theater, I still love going to the movies, not just because... I'm seeing something that I want to see or I'm interested in, but because it is a moment where I and hopefully a few hundred people or however many are in the room with me have collectively decided to spend two hours just doing this one thing, right? Right. Um, But being at home, I mean, I've seen all of the classics at home because I don't see those things on the big screen. Yeah, I don't see 2001 Space Odyssey on the big screen. I don't see Apocalypse Now or The Godfather there. Yeah. I have to see those all at home on my tiny CRTs until I got to big HD screens, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I see your point. You're absolutely right in that a good movie is a good movie no matter whether you're watching it on your phone or not. I, Actually, I, it's it, those like, people watching it on their phones, those things are too tiny. <laughs> but I, but I see people watching stuff like this on their phones all the time. Like I was, I was on the on the streetcar the other day, and I wa- I saw somebody watching. Uh, they, they they were watching Noah on their on their th- on their phone, and I'm like, are you kidding me? That that's a very big movie. Why are you watching it on something so damn tiny? Um, 
I, I wonder about stuff like that. If you know, that, that's the one thing. Like, while I, I think Netflix as a platform has incredible reach, especially for something like this, I wonder if if it really did a disservice to its story. It's a problematic story, but I, I do wonder about that. Um, now, Elba, maybe you should stop judging people's viewing choices because maybe that person had no time in their day and there were just that more 15 minutes to watch that 15 minutes of that movie. Maybe like me sometimes at work, I'll plop up my, my tablet, turn on Netflix and watch Francis half for the 30th time because I don't need to watch it. I can just listen to it and love it. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to, no, screw you. I'm going to judge. I don't care. That's just one of my happiest parts of my day. I get to judge. Um, Idris Elba in this movie is one of the standout characters, as he as he always is, like as as he has been for a long time and will continue to be. He has endless charisma and prowess whenever he's around his soldiers, who are all children. But did you feel that his the the air kind of went out of his performance, either either by design or possibly just uh, you know in in terms of how it was all laid out, whenever he was when he was confronted by command and it actually kind of reminded me of Oliver Twist it kind of reminded me of Fagin where to all of his boys to people like Dodger and Oliver Fagin is this person to be followed and respected but you put him in front of anybody else if you put him in front of the authorities or you put him in front of Sykes Fagin just kind of deflates did you get that idea about the commandant in this movie or did you have some other take on his character um, as it relates to Stringer Luther Bell, um, <laughs> his his character, to me, it, it seemed a little one note in that he just felt like that kind of guy who kept the bravado up to keep his, 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 his soldiers' morale up. He knew that they were fighting a war, and even I'd like to think of him as a real person who actually feels it's kind of horrible to be having children warriors, even though he knows he has to do it for the sake of the, the battle. Um, where he knows that's where he's going to get his manpower from. That's who he's going to get the the people who he can influence to do the things he needs to get done. So you, you feel he felt conflicted about that? No. I oh. said I'd like to think that he's oh. conflicted about yeah, it. Okay, okay. I'm not saying that's what he gave me. Yeah. Um, but more to the point, when he gets to that point you're talking about with the with the command telling him how they have to change and how he has to change and how it shifts like it feels like a continuation of that it feels like someone who who kind of doesn't admit his own reality and just just plays the hand that plays plays as best he can into keeping keeping running what he has which is allowing himself to put himself above these children who obviously can't contest him um and just keep morale up and enjoy himself as the commandant who is the guy who gets to run around Africa and just kill everyone and otherwise it just felt kind of silly and that and that's the crazy thing it's not even like you uh you know earlier on we were talking about the last king of scotland and at least in that movie you can see how he's living so large right like he's got he's got palaces and he's got endless plates of food and if i remember correctly he's even got like women draped all over him and everything like that it's been it's been a while since i've seen the last king of scotland and actually that might have been a good movie to revisit as another side but the commandant seems like he's just off on an island to himself like he's I, I don't actually know, aside from personal pride, I don't actually know what was in it for him. It was just it was just a ride is all it was, and that's what I'm saying. It was just him 
going, this is kind of awesome that I'm that this position and it's I just, can it's have this much drug. fun. It's, it's, yeah. war is, it's war is a drug. Yeah. Well, if, if that's, you know, if, that, if that's the idea, if, if the idea of the Commandant is war is a drug, then first of all, I watched The Hurt Locker last week and I can tell you that there are movies that do war as a drug much better than this movie. And I, you know, I, I feel like I've seen that. And then, and that's, that's the frustration of Beasts of No Nation is, is as much interest as I get from these little isolated moments like Agu's first kill or like his initiation or, or certainly like the introduction to this movie and the conclusion the of this best movie, which part I think of like, this movie, the first 15 minutes. Oh my God, it's fantastic. And that's the thing. Like I was, I was in like the first fifteen minutes of the movie. I thought were glorious. I was like, oh, I'm all over this. As much as I, I was in it for those moments, everything else just doesn't seem to land, and it's so unfortunate. I'm kind of disappointed that when you mentioned the Last King of Scotland, you didn't, you didn't try to do um, Forrest Whitaker's character's real life title, which is. Have you, know, oh, you know like that his royal ex? Oh my god! Yeah, there's like. Well, let 20... me read. It. Let me read this out to you Please because do. this is this is brilliant. Yes, it's the real life character that he's playing is Idi Amin, yeah. um, the Ugandan president, and his title that he prefers to be referred to as is, I quote, his excellency, his excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal Al Haji Doctor Idi Aman Dada, VC, DSO, MC, CBE. Yeah. Yeah, you got to think that that's get that gets old. Like the third time you have to refer to him is that at dinner. Part of me likes to think, and I've and based on the interviews I'm seeing with him, it probably is true that I he forces it. everyone in his life to say that full thing every time they call him out. Yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> I I you know it gives me no joy to rail on Beast of No Nation, especially because there are interesting things about it, but it just feels. It feels too unrealized. It feels something. It feels like something that would be a better book, or or even to build it out. Like I, I feel like maybe Netflix should have made this a series. Maybe you know they're they're having a great time with the TV shows don't, right now. Don't 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 feel them. Don't <laughs> don't we don't. Actually, I was just having this conversation with my brother earlier um, because we sat down and we watched the Bill Murray Christmas special tonight, okay. which came up which came up tonight. So. Everyone listening, if you want, you can go and see the Bill Murray Christmas special. Um, the we've realized for the last couple months, every every Friday, Netflix has had something to release, and we're like, look, we love that you're, you're bringing out more content, but we have lives. We need you to kind of stagger this a little bit for us. Oh, I get you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. I I, I totally get that. That's the reason why my movie watching went down this week was because they, you know, they dropped Jessica Jones. Yeah. So I still okay. need to finish that. It, you should. It's it's quite good. Um, Beast of No Nation. Unfortunately, though, I think we're we're both saying is uh, is a bit of a pass. However, we do like to end our review section with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could, you would keep from the film and 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 hold with you as a souvenir. Andrew Robinson, what is your souvenir from Beast of No Nation? It's obvious. It's the imagination television. I would I would so wolf pack those children and make them make the greatest movies of all time for me. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, I was going to, I was going to say, is it racist of me to say, I want a television where little African children act out my movies for me? 
And I would appreciate 3D more. Oh my god, yes. I, you know what? I gotta be honest. The fact that the 3D actually comes out is fantastic. And they're doing the kung fu movies and they actually do like the slow-mo kung fu too. Um, weren't they doing a musical at one point? Yep. Yeah, it's it's great. Like No, it, they were doing a soap opera. That was And it, they were yes. dancing. Yeah. The soap opera was brilliant. You're too ugly. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Yes. That is how relationships end people. People are too ugly. Ugly. We don't talk to the ugly people. Yeah, it's you know it, it's it's the first and last moment of whimsy in this entire movie, and and I kind of feel like I wanted more of that. That at the end of the day, that boys are still boys, and even if you put even if you turn them into soldiers, and even if you put rifles in their hands, that they're still boys. And I kind of wanted a little bit more of that. So the fact that we have to go almost the entire length of the movie before we get to see them act as boys again is really a shame. Um, we rate on here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Andrew Robinson, what do you give Kari Fukunaga's Beast of No Nation? And this guy did Sinumbra. He knows how to do other cultures. I Actually, know. that's kind of his. Yep. Um, so, so um, which proves my point. Um, I probably give this somewhere between a one and a two. I'd give it a one and a half, a two. I don't know. A two. Give it a two. Go to yeah. sleep. Forget about it. <laughs> I, I give it a two. I give it a two on visual splendor alone. Like uh, this is this is a kind of movie. If it wasn't so violent, you could put it on mute and just do other things. You know, and, and just like let it serve as as a moving screensaver. But of course, it it, it is very bloody at, and in places and very disturbing. So you can't even do that. But as far as story is concerned, the adaptation of the story is really really missing, and its structure is really really lacking. And it's a shame because I feel like this could have been far, far better. Um, hey, maybe we're wrong because I do know that there are a lot of people out there who really love this movie. Um, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, or I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Kerry Fukunaga's Beasts of No Nation? We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this to flip the record over, play the other side, and talk about some better movies right after this. We're back on episode 148. I'm talking to Andrew Robinson from Jamaica, owner of gmanreviews.com. We are going to flip the record over and play the other side. Andrew's choice to go along with Beast of No Nation goes back to 2008. It is, in truth, two films, actually one film, uh, all directed by Steven Soderbergh. It is Che. Uh, the first part is referred to as the Argentine. The second part is referred to as Gorilla. It is a four hour and 20 minute opus um, dedicated to life and times of Che Guevara uh, from the time that he became a Cuban revolutionary on. Um, you know, we, we might get into this, but it is, does not at all talk to uh, talk about his. Uh, emigration from Argentina into the fracas in Cuba. Uh, Andrew, I, of course, I've been listening to your show for a long time, so I know that you worship at the altar of Soderbergh, <laughs> uh, much to your co-host's chagrin. Oh, I've I've been told that I can't pick any more Soderbergh movies. They they actually had a party here, which I wasn't invited to when he announced his retirement. Oh, that ain't right at all. They're like, nope, you can't come. You like him too much. 
we're going to we're going to make jokes about Soderbergh. So what <laughs> what was it uh, about a Beast of No Nation, or what was it about Che that made you think this is the film that I want to move on to for better or for worse? Because like any film snob. I like to point at movies I don't like and say, look, it, it was done better here. Okay. Um, and uh, more to the point, the, the, the element I really want to focus on, um, which I love about Che, which is why I kind of love that it's split into two, um, is that it's two stories about the same thing attempted in two different countries and two different opportunities and how it goes right and wrong. And you kind of you kind of spend the rest of the time watching the movie trying to find all of the elements to the potion as to why it went right one time and why it went wrong the other time. Um, and I kind of love it for it. When I, when I watch part one leading into the Cuban Revolution, what I love watching it and what I kind of felt totally missing from Beast of No Nation was an actual feeling for the emotion of the country as these guerrillas were heading through the nation and picking up steam, picking up more people, getting more warriors, making a making a, a actual effort to be intentional about who they allow into their army and who they won't allow into their army. Um, as you see repeatedly, people coming up and saying, look, I have a gun, I want to come in, and Che telling them, can you read, can you write? Nope, we don't want you. Go and learn how to be intelligent and then you can come back because the revolution needs those people. And as I was watching it again, and as I was watching it, because the first part, it actually cuts between the UN delegation and the actual um, buildup of the revolution across Cuba, is watch is paying attention to Che's kind of philosophy of what makes a great revolution, what makes a revolution work. And he says the the one thing that's required for a revolution to work is love, right? Yeah. Every every warrior needs to love his country, needs to know what he's fighting for. Because at that point, if you have a warrior which is which is true to his true to the revolution philosophy, he will fight like nine warriors, right? Like nine soldiers. So which is why you'll see repeatedly in that movie, you'll see um, excursions where you'll see it's obvious that it's twenty men against two hundred, but they still win out. Yeah. Whether do you, whether it's due to Che Guevara and Fidel's tactical sense that we don't really get too much of a, a feeling for, the, to be quite honest, or whether it's just due to that revolution philosophy. Um, and I kind of love the movie for that. And when we lead into the second part, which is actually the failed attempt in Bolivia, um, you kind of get more of a feeling as to what a country might be needing to get that to get that revolution to occur. Well, it's, um, it's interesting that you mention it that way because – so when we get back to Beasts of No Nation, one of the things that at first I really liked about it because I, I, I do like it when movies do this and when stories do this, but it treads a very, very fine line is in Beasts of No Nation, the country is not named. The country is – like we know it's West Africa just because of the accents, because of the landscape, but we don't know where – it is or, or what country it's it's pretending even to be and in a lot of respects I, I like that especially when it comes to movies set in a city I've always said for the life for the longest time I've said that movies based in New York and Chicago 99 times out of 100 do not need to be 
New York and Chicago movies. They can just be any town North America movies and they work just as well. But Beasts of No Nation almost proves that wrong because there's no history behind it. There's no, like, you know, we, we know what happened in Cuba. We know what happened in Bolivia and we can watch that unfold in, in new light with, with Che in Beasts of No Nation. It's just playing it fast and loose and making a story up from scratch and not giving us any kind of tether to our world. It's what it is, is that kind of like Che Guevara's philosophy about revolution, about needing a love for your country, is that the movie lacked that completely. Maybe it's because we didn't know what country it was, even though I don't think that's really, really necessary, because as all of us know, there are many nations in Africa which have gone through wars like this. Sure. Some are ongoing, some have still are still reeling from it. Um, and... But I don't feel like we, could, I don't feel could, like we could have identified that love. Either the movie just doesn't yeah. identify it flat out, or the fact that the country itself is never named and and never even alluded to precludes that love that, that you know and, that is front and center in Che and what we all know of Cuba. And maybe it's because every character in Beast of No Nation shows us the actual opposite of love as it relates to their own motivation. Oh, yeah. Agu and Stryker and most of the soldiers in that army are, are f- all fearful of a reality where, there aren't, where they aren't warriors and will be murdered by warriors. Um, and Idris Elva, the commandant, he's just there, as I said repeatedly, riding the wave of just being a badass, yeah. where he's just allowed to have his way with, the, with this land. Um, and as you hear him in a scene later on in that movie where he literally says, I want the land that you promised me at the end of this excursion. Yeah. Right. Where he is just profiting as opposed to Che, where he literally doesn't care if he gets five cents out of this war. Mm. All he wants is liberation. All he wants is freedom from, from the people who are oppressing Cuba or Bolivia. Yeah. Right. Now, now this movie, this is a grand movie. This is a movie that really actually um, planted the seeds of Soderbergh's eventual move into television. Which, by the way, are you watching the Nick? I am like most of this season behind, but I tell myself every week I should catch up. Okay, I I I've, love that. I've, show. Only, I've only watched season one. I haven't watched uh, like a single scene of season two. So don't worry, you're not you're not alone. But this movie, like with it being the better part of five hours, it almost feels like it was planting the seed in his mind. I can tell this kind of story on a much broader palette if I have the luxury of length. And I'm I'm and, and that's why I'm surprised that Beast of No Nation actually went succinct. But I'm kind of curious. How do you make a war movie into a serial, right? Because that's that's the truth of it, of television. Television is a serial medium. Um, when we're watching Jessica Jones or we're watching Daredevil, we're seeing even though there's a grander story being told where they're leading up to the final the final battle, and you're seeing other elements of the world that they're giving you. It, it is it is episode one is a story and episode two is a story but when a war is kind of win or lose right as game of thrones likes to say you there's no there's no win or lose in game of thrones there is either the king or death 
right? But, it's but, something but, like that. I'm... But war itself is a sequence of events. Like, no, you know, don't get me wrong. There, there's been conflict that's gone on for centuries, but most war is solved within a matter of, if not years, then a few decades. Uh, and, you know, both of these conflicts, I feel like ones that you could have summarized as one episode represents either a month or a year within the conflict and you at least focus on the central events shit right now in new york there's a musical about the american revolution that gets six years worth or so of american politics into three hours so i feel like it's i feel like it's possible it just takes a deft hand now i think and i'm sure your your co-host would disagree I think that Soderbergh has a deft hand where somebody like Fukunawa does not. I'm always going to be pro Soderbergh and it's for the same reason that I go to bed for so many filmmakers. It's not because I think that he hits it out of the park every time. It's that every time I think he can hit it out of the park. Um, and that well, excites me. Do you also look at a, do you also look at a project like this as drawing a clear line between Soderbergh and faux Soderbergh because there's a lot of shows and movies out there that seem to want to follow his example but at the end of the day you're like okay no 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 this is what he brings to the table as a storyteller and when you get him exploring one man over four hours and 20 minutes and two very specific incidents in his very very checkered and storied life that's pretty bold. It's actually interesting to me how it never becomes biographical about anything other than those two revolutions. Yeah, that's actually the thing that inter- that finds that I'm interested most in about what Soderbergh was deciding to do about this film because it's so easy whenever you're making biographical stories in movies for them to be like, okay, now we need an origin story for Che Guevara. He was a child in Argentina and he, he grew up like this and then he eventually discovered medicine and all of these things when he we realized we really don't need all of that. Or more importantly, the, the, the version of Che we want to tell is the version of that is this story um, and not, not the version that builds up to that. Um, and it just works, right? It's... It's a film that makes you feel for a nation, makes you feel for a cause, makes you feel for the people who gave their lives for that cause. Which and is, that is everything that so no nation is not. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. And that is that is certainly a takeaway from this movie is that it's, you know, like it says, you, you to be a revolutionary, you have to love and you have to have heart. And that is something that, that Beast of No Nation does not have. Where Che does, and for the time you spend with it, you could certainly spend more time with Che, uh, even though Andrew's co-host would tell you otherwise. Um, so obviously... On an bo- aside... What's that? It was great we're watching this movie to discover that Oscar Isaac and Damien Bashir are in this film. Did not recognize them the first time I saw this movie. I- totally forgot that Oscar Isaac was in this movie so I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it for that now I do remember the people that show up for like five seconds like I remember that uh, Lou Diamond Phillips shows up for a minute and I remember yep. that Franco Patente shows up for five minutes and I also remember that Matt Damon shows up for 30 seconds I do not remember Matt Damon on this watch. Oh yeah, maybe no, that was a slight blink. Yeah, he's 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 not he's <laughs> a slight. <laughs> we, <laughs> you're turning it to me is what's happening there. Did you also did you notice the uh, did you notice the rate the um, aspect ratio shift in between part one and part two? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, it's one of those things. It's another one of those things that I love about this movie. You know that that it really brings in those kinds of things and um, is definitely a much better watch than Beasts of No Nation. But we have one more movie to talk about, so we're gonna take one more last quick break. Come on back after this. We're gonna talk about one more film and close out the show. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything they say? Kids, they are disobedient, disrespectful oafs. Noisy, crazy, sloppy, lazy loafers. While we're on the subject... For my choice on the other side, I went back to 1963 to a classic adapted from a classic book uh, directed by Peter Brook. I summoned the Lord of the Flies for somewhat obvious reasons. Uh, We have in Beasts of No Nation the story of children who are playing a man's game uh, and in, in a lot of ways I feel like every time we tell that story that we're telling slightly different or slightly slanted version of Lord of the Flies which of course was the classic novel by, uh, by, by William Golding and has been infused into all sorts of pieces of pop culture uh, you know it, it, it got invoked in Lost it's got invoked all kinds of places um, and seems to be one of those seminal works about the devolution of society. Had you seen the classic 1963 version before we set out the, the roadmap of this episode? Absolutely not. And oddly enough, it's a movie I've been avoiding for a lot of my life. Why? Um, when I actually went to two high schools. I went to St. George's College for the first three years, and then I transferred over to Campion College. Anyone in any Jamaican listeners out there, you'll know who the, those two schools. Um, when I got to Camping College, one of the classes that is required for everyone to take, which isn't really a graded class, it's just kind of a whatever class, it is called PD, Personal Development. And I got to spend the next four years of my life listening to people cry and moan the fact that they had to watch Lord of the Flies because apparently in the early years of high school there they made you watch Lord of the Flies and I just skipped out that year and I have been avoiding that movie ever since up until today when you said Andrew I want to talk about Lord of the Flies and I went god damn it (laughs) Lord of the Flies it is okay now so okay so let's back up a step then had you read the book or have you read the book absolutely not really nope Wow. Okay. So, so, but you were like familiar with its. You were anybody who's watched The Simpsons is familiar with its beats. Look, look. I saw the greatest movie of all time, that being Silver Linings Playbook, and that woman gave the perfect review of this movie, which was, it's about a lot of mean boys, and they have a conch. Which guys? It's not pronounced conch. It's conch. I know that. Right? Like, like, is it a thing in the world where they say conch? I don't. I've never heard of that before. That movie, before Silver Linings Playbook, and it is the funniest thing in the world to me. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I have was, heard that, but it's always sounded wrong to me. Like it's Kung Soup, guys. Kung Kung Soup is brilliant. Um, I'm a big fan. Have, I'm a big fan of the fritters. <laughs> um, and they have the Kung, and they're mean, and they're horrible, and it just ends. And guys, it's kind of dumb. That's the movie for Lord of the Flies. It's, it's very British. It's well, it, it is. Um, it's, it's I was funny. disappointed by the ending. Really? Okay, so it's kind of funny because when when Lindsay actually was was watching this movie, she said, "You know, 
this is what happens when there's no estrogen in the room. She goes, if there, if it was, if, this is what happens when it's all men running the world. I'm like, well, probably, but I'm like, at the same time, it's also just the no rules of it all. So when you, so, so wait a minute, you're coming down on the, this was a waste of time. Like you did not enjoy this at all. Not at all. Wow. And oddly enough, somewhere towards the three quarter part, I kind of, have imagined that a girl would appear and then they would go batshit crazy oh they they they, they would have lost it <laughs> um i'm 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 kind of aghast because this is this is one of my favorite books i've i've read this book like several times in my life it's the kind of book i i reread it every two or three years uh and and i then now the difference of course was i'd seen the rather lame 1990s adaptation of it done by touchstone but i'd never seen this version which is the one that everybody kind of points to uh but of course i knew the story so i i came away from this actually really enjoying it and this actually helped get the the taste of beast of no nation out of my mouth <laughs> i kind of figured what the story would be from all of the cues i've heard from everywhere about what this movie is um I kind of imagined a different ending because my brain goes to bad places. Um, <laughs> I don't but, know how much worse you wanted that ending to get. No, no, no. I didn't want it to be worse. I wanted them to see him and then go get him and oh, stab him. <laughs> I see. Okay. You wanted some more sharp And that is the end of the movie. I want – look, my viewpoint of this movie is this is a poorly done but ideally it is the prequel to me. Mad Max. It is the reasoning of Immortan Joe, right? Oh my god. And that god. makes sense to me. <laughs> I I guess. Um I, I don't know. For me it was you know, it it was really, really cool to see something that I know so well be illustrated this way. I, I felt sheltered that I hadn't seen this movie already because I kind of feel like I should have seen this version long, long ago. And I actually if found If you went to high school here, you would have. Well, um, okay, so <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like I was supposed to read it in high school, but I bullshitted my way through it <laughs> because were, I I know it was. Dis- were you a Cliff Notes guy? I was a Cliff Notes guy. No, 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 no. I was not a Cliff Notes guy. What I was was I was the fail the content test guy, and then listen to the discussion, con- uh, contribute when I had something to say, and take the notes and read the passages. I, I I was just never good at reading the whole book before the assigned date. That that was me. I that that was my that was my mo, and and you know I've I've copped to that several times, but I can't recall if this was something that. Uh, an independent study did when I was in school and I was just listening to their presentation or if it was something that I, the whole class was supposed to read and I myself did not, I, I can't remember right this moment. And and that's been insight into Ryan's education history. Um, but watching the movie, um, I, I was struck by how haunting it was, especially like in the early going there, there's the scene where the, the private, the, the, the choir school, shows up after the conch is blown like a, like a trumpet and they walk like from the far end of the shot along the curve of the beach and like take their sweet ass time walking into the foreground. And I'm thinking to myself, that kind of puts me in the mindset of what I've got to come later on when I do the blind spot for this month with, uh, with seventh seal. Like it could have been the robes or the black and white or the beach. I don't know, but watching that shot, especially I was like, that, there's really something eerie about that shot. 
They're just mean children. Well, they are. No, like, and so are many children. But I mean, even just later on when we get, you know, when, when when the pig is killed and they leave its head on the pike as a sacrifice to the beast, uh, which, you know, you, you, you call them mean children. I call them dumb children when they think that there's a beast on that island. And, and some of them see it and it is so clearly a human. I'm like, I don't care if you've got a helmet on. That is a human, you dumb child. How in the world are you running away from that thinking that that is a monster? But that said, the shot in this movie where we have that pig's head on a pike is, again, very eerie and very disturbing. And part of me thinks that it's it comes down to the black and white of it all. Because I, I, I found it really interesting seeing seeing that moment where they first they first feast, right? Where they go, they hunt, they get that pig, and they first feast on the pig, and you see all of the children just going to town on that pig. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, this is this is this is the movie where we see where we should see this happen to one of the children, where that is what this movie should do, but no movie's gonna do that, right? Yeah, yeah, like you know, and well, 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 that's that's the metaphor, right? Of course, is that that that's you give them a long enough timeline, and that's exactly what we're gonna do. Is you know, not there, there's 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 a body count of the boys in this movie, and even just one of them, like you feel you feel pretty gutted after you lose one, and that ain't the end of it. And then you feel really gutted, like by the time that ending comes along, like you weren't crazy about that ending. Uh, most people I talk to, by the time that ending rolls around, they're just exhausted. They're just, they, they get to that moment and they're just so ready for a grown up to show up because they're like, this is just going to get worse and worse so quick if somebody doesn't step in right bloody now. And that's, and that's the thing. I like, I kind of feel Beasts of No Nation needed more grown ups that were not power hungry soldiers to show up and you know you know and take the kids out of that bloodlust and out of their own lord of the flies you know i have the gun so i'm in charge kind of mentality they should stab him <laughs> jesus i think like, the other thing about this movie is that for me it's it's rare to think of like uh, a deserted island in black and white Anytime I think of that kind of setting, I think of color. I think especially of green, and I think of really bright, saturated colors. Um, so to see it in black and white, I think, was part of why I was so disarmed and, and so affected by it. Summer of Monica. Yeah. Summer yep. with Monica. Yep. Yep. No. So I, you should, you know, you should I, hit up some Bergman, dude. I, 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 well, I, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. As I said, it's Seventh Seal. It's my, it's my blind spot for December. I'm kind of saddened. I, I kind of thought that you were going to, I wonder if just its reputation got in the way, or I kind of wonder what would happen if I, well, I was going to say, I, I definitely wonder what would happen if I mailed you a copy of the book, because I wonder if it would even <laughs> get to you. So when I say I wonder what would happen, but I would be curious what would happen if you read this book. Um, I don't know. Like there's so many, there's so many movies which feel better as books because you get to enjoy them at your own pace. You get to, you get to feel them out a lot more. Um, with movies, you always have that 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 motion to it, where it, you know it has to move to the next minute, it has to move to the next scene, it has to move to the next shot, and you have to move with the movie, even if you might want to sit there for a moment and be like, "Oh, they just killed that child." Um, 
and with books you can actually close them when you have that moment and move on and as someone who doesn't read that much it's 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 one of those things like I've been a poor reader all of my life which is why I was a cliff notes child right the minute I realized I could I could read a hundred page pamphlet kind of summarizing something all the characters and something as opposed to me reading a 500 page Shakespeare play which was all old English and horrible. They're never um, 500 pages. I can tell you I'd, that right now. I'm just now. picking a number because of my page. <laughs> You're picking um, the wrong number. <laughs> um, I, I, I did the easy way out, and I ended up doing relatively well in literature courses. Um, but I've, I've tried to remedy this in many years gone by, and I faltered and done okay and not so good. But... I still believe in the mediums being completely different. And to tell you the truth, the one thing that I would use to describe the Lord of the Flies movie is it very much feels like a movie of its time. Um, there is something to the way this movie is framed, its stage, the way that it paces itself. The it way it feels opens. So much, it feels so much like all of those British TV movies of the time sure. when they were like, we have to kind of guide you through this. We're not gonna, we're not gonna make it hard, and we're not gonna make it seem silly. Even though I kind of thought that opening with its descri- its visual description of a plane crashed and they're on an island, very kind of weird and like, oh, we don't have a budget, which is kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- again, that comes back to the book. Like the book just opens with them like wandering out of the ocean and out of the forest. It doesn't actually talk about why they're there. Actually, actually was the, the most interesting to, the, to me was when I was watching this movie was, and you mentioned it already was when I started to go like, Oh, holy rubbish. This is where lost came from. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> like I never thought I would, I would find lost in this movie because I kind of love lost. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, as I say, I, I may very well mail you a copy of this book and ask for a book report later. Uh, <laughs> but for me, this was this was what I wanted Beasts of No Nation to be. This kind of story, this kind of Lost Boys story, uh, this kind of Oliver Twist story of what happens to orphans when you put them either with no rules or under poor rule. Um, this is this is the this is that story written really well if you're talking about the book and and this version of it like this film i was actually i was really really smitten with how it was captured and it saddens me deeply that it didn't land for you but uh you know i i guess they can't all be winners right no not at all there we go well that is episode 148 of the matinee cast i'd like to thank andrew robinson for stopping by to talk about piece of no nation come on back on monday december 21st for episode 149, we will be discussing Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is not Beast of Monation. Uh, Andrew, of course, is on gmanreviews.com and the Unnamed Movie Podcast, which one of these days they're going to shock us all and finally name it. Uh, <laughs> what what, uh, what can we look forward to either, uh, you know, somewhat on the site, but definitely on the show in the, in the days and weeks to come? Um, there's a fantasy episode going to be coming up soon, probably before this hep- episode hits the internet. Um, and I know we're planning some sort of an 80s kind of action movie okay. um, discussion, as well as dis- discussing a film called Streets of Fire, a very lost 80s action oh, movie. Oh, man. Well, see, I- I'm going gonna- I'm to rub it in again. 
that played on a screen here back in October. <laughs> um, and I know that the end of year is coming, so we're going to be doing our, ta- our our end of year discussion some point early in January. So otherwise, there are absolutely no plans. We do have, we are continuing our filmmaker series, um, and we have a few names in the hat. Hopefully, we'll hear some interesting things about that soon. Very cool. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Um, I'm at Gman Reviews. Very cool. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Pocket Cast, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Beast of No Nation, Che, or The Lord of the Flies, or Why Andrew is Wrong can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, facebook.com slash darkmatinee, or Twitter, ryanmatinee underscore ca. Any final thoughts, buddy? Hashtag Ryan is wrong. Dude, we got to cut this short. Uh, Top Gun is coming on TV right now, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm getting the whole thing about like the, the war in the Indian Ocean right now, so we got we to gotta cut this short because... There's some there's some dog fighting to be watched. For Andrew Robinson, I'm Ryan McNeil. We'll see you at the matinee.